I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us. I wanted to address really quick the summer break outreach we had last week. Many of you have heard about it. Many of you volunteered to be a part of it. Many of you volunteered to help provide supplies. Well, we didn't have quite the turnout we had hoped for. The weather wasn't great in the morning, so people probably kind of made the decision early on that they weren't going to be able to go to the pool. It just wasn't a great day to swim. But nonetheless, it was still very much worth it. There were families there that we were able to meet, that we were able to serve, that we were able to show them that we love them, that we care about them, the people who work at the pool. And those are opportunities that we're going to be continuing to look for. Because we believe that outreach doesn't happen overnight, that it's something that's going to take weeks or months or years of things like that, us going out to the community and showing people that we care about them. And we hope that as we do that over that course of time, that slowly but surely people are going to realize that this church cares about people. This church loves people. This church serves people. And we hope that those will open up doors where the gospel might be shared, where Christ might be proclaimed to people who otherwise may not have really had a lot of time of day to listen to a church like this. But when they know that we care about them, that gives us a little bit more credibility. So thank you to everybody who was a part of that. We're going to continue to have events like that. The Fisher's Freedom Festival that Joshua mentioned, that's coming up. Sign up for that because we really want to be a church that loves our neighbors as our vision says that we are. Now, it's also Father's Day. And as Joshua mentioned, for many people, this can be a day of celebrating, a day of joy. For some people, it can be a sobering day. For me, I was someone that grew up and I was blessed to have a father who loved God and still loves God to this day. He's a godly man and he raised me to know Christ. But I also know that I often take that for granted because not everybody has that same opportunity. So I'm thankful for him and I'm thankful for other fathers here or maybe our own fathers that did that for us. We're thankful to fathers who are doing that right now or fathers who are going to be doing that here in the future when they have kids. But some have lost fathers, some have strained relationships with fathers, some want to be fathers but aren't yet and might not be in the future. And so we know that's tough. So we're praying for you. And some of us may have fathers who don't know Christ. And being in church on a Sunday morning on Father's Day and hearing all this stuff about how God is the perfect father, it only reminds us that our fathers don't know Christ. And even though we love them, even though we serve them, even though we try to show Christ's love to them, it just doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. And it frustrates us and it upsets us. Well, we pray for you too. So no matter what category you fall into, Let's pray together this morning. We'll pray for every father that we just mentioned, and then we'll get into our sermon. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we're grateful for all that you do for us, for the incredible love that you show us, even during times where you might discipline us. It's always hard in the short term, but we know that's what loving fathers do, and sometimes you do that too. And God, all of our earthly fathers, whether they know you or not, All of them fall short from time to time. All of the fathers here, we all fall short from time to time, but you don't. And God, thank you for being that incredible example of love and mercy and justice and patience. And God, I pray that we might be a little bit more like you every single day with our kids. But God, we're also grateful that you are so gracious when we do fall short that We don't have to walk on eggshells being scared that we have to have it all together, that we have to be perfect as parents or any other aspect of life, but that your grace abounds. And so, God, we celebrate that this morning. 
We celebrate your word. I pray that you'll speak to us, that you'll do whatever it is that you need to do in each of our lives, whether it's encourage or convict or teach or whatever it is, God. I just pray that your word will be sufficient. We know it is, that your Holy Spirit will be active and that we will submit to that at all times. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we're in our series going through the Ten Commandments. And last week we were on commandment number two. And that was that commandment about not making graven images. And we kind of wonder, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, we talked about it in the original context. It was very common back then for different nations to have images of their gods, whether it was a statue, whether it was an inscription, whether it was some kind of altar. And these people would pray to that or make sacrifices to it or worship the image itself. And God makes it clear to his people that you are not to make images of those gods anymore. You're not to worship those gods anymore because like commandment number one says, there is no other God before me. But not only are you not to worship those images, as well-intentioned as you might be, don't make images of me either. There might have been that Israelite person who was saying, you know, all the other gods have images. They get worshipped. I don't want our God to be ignored. Let's make an image of him, too. And it will be bigger and it will be more ornate and it will be fancier. And then all the other nations will see our image and they'll just be blown away. But God says, no, don't make images of them and don't try and replicate me either. And the biggest reason for that is that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he has nothing in common with any of those images. Those images are created by human hands. God creates the humans that create those images. Those images are finite. God is infinite. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Those images aren't. Those images, they can be controlled. They can be picked up. They can be moved. God can't be controlled. And the thing about images, the core problem, is that they don't do God justice. Because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this one true God, he cannot be remotely contained by any image. No matter how impressive or great or massive or ornate it is, those images cheapen God. He can't be contained by them. And so we as followers of Jesus, we worship God for who he truly is. Not the images that we make or anybody, else's, anybody else makes with our hands. We don't worship the perceptions of God, the images of God that we sometimes create with our imaginations because that image of God is a little bit more manageable. That image of God is a little bit more reasonable to us. It meets our standards a little bit more. We don't worship any of those images. We worship the one true God for who he truly is, and no image can contain that. So that brings us to where we are today, the third commandment, that classic commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain. And often we think we know what that means, but there's more to it than we might initially think at face value. But before we get into that, let's all agree on something. Names matter to us. Names are important to us as people. We love when people remember our names, don't we? When we go to a restaurant, when we go to a store, when someone remembers our name, it impresses us. It means the world to us. It means a lot to us because it shows us that we're not just some random blank face. We're not just a number. We're not just a customer. These people genuinely care about us and they actually know a little bit about us. And so when we find a place that remembers our name, 
we often want to go back. When I was a little kid, if my mom said Benjamin Edward Halliburton, I knew that I was in trouble because using my full name meant that she had something really important to say, and it typically wasn't good. And when people get married, when the woman often gives up her last name to take on her husband's name, that's a big deal. That woman, in a way, is giving up a little part of her identity and taking on a little part of her husband's identity. And that's nothing to be taken lightly. When we have babies, we debate for weeks or for months what we're going to name our babies. We buy books at the checkout line at Kroger or Meyer that have the most popular baby names. We read blogs. We talk about it. We think about it. We go back and forth. Olivia and I have no idea what we're going to name this baby that's coming in November, whether it's a boy, whether it's a girl. We are clueless what we're going to call this baby. But the thing is that names matter to us. While we often take them for granted as just words that come out like every other word, they're just ways of getting people's attention, when you really think about it, names are important. But names don't just matter to us. Names matter to God, too. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Early on in Scripture, one of the first tasks that God gives Adam, this first man that he has created, chapter 2, verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. God gives Adam this task of naming the animals and You'd think, as powerful as God is, this guy who can speak everything into being just by saying something, who created everything that you see, you'd think that he'd be powerful enough to handle that on his own. You'd think that he could come up with names that were easy to pronounce and they made sense and they were easy to differentiate from animal to animal by their name. God could have done that, and yet he tells Adam, you name the animals. This creation is for you. I've given it to you to subdue it and to manage it. And so you get this big responsibility of naming the animals, which I imagine probably took a pretty long time. But there's also times when God specifically tells parents what they're supposed to name their babies before they're even born. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 13. We see it with two different names, the name John and the name Jesus. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Zechariah and Elizabeth, a good, God-honoring couple, doing exactly what it is they should be doing, but they can't have a baby. And then an angel comes to them and says, Zechariah, Elizabeth, you're going to have a baby. He's going to have a really important job, a really important mission that I'm giving him. And by the way, name him John. That's going to be his name. And Zechariah and Elizabeth say, well, okay, if you say so. Look at verse 30 of Luke chapter 1. We see a very similar thing with Mary. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, you might think that God would kind of think, you know what? Mary, Joseph, Zechariah, Elizabeth, you're going to have kids. These kids are from me. These are going to be very special kids. And as long as they accomplish their mission, 
As long as they do this thing that I'm giving them to do, as long as they commit themselves to this task, and you know that, you can name them whatever you want. You got an uncle you want to name him after? Name him after an uncle. If there's a popular name floating around Bethlehem at this time, feel free to do that. But just be aware that he's going to have to go by that name when he's like 40. So just know that. But clearly, God cares about names. He specifically tells these parents, here's what you're going to name your babies. And the parents say, well, okay. But then there's even times where God changes people's names after they've been born. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. We've talked about our friend Abraham, this guy who was given the promise completely out of nowhere, nothing special about him, but he's told to follow God, and he does just that. And God gives him this promise to have all kinds of descendants, and all these nations are going to come after you, and they're going to bless the entire world around them. Well, Abraham wasn't always Abraham. Verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. What's the big deal? What's the big difference between Abram and Abraham? If you're pronouncing it fast, you probably wouldn't even tell the difference. But God changes Abram's name because names matter to God. One last example, John chapter 1, verse 42. We see it with Jesus as well. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So one of Jesus's first followers, a guy who hardly even knows Jesus yet. Jesus says, hey, Simon, you're Peter now. And that's going to come back later. That's going to be important later. Names matter to God. And they matter to us. They're part of our identities. They're part of who we are. And those people who know our names, they initially have that first foot in the door of a potentially close, intimate relationship. But there's one name that especially matters to God. And that name is his name. That's what we're going to look at today with the third commandment. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, use one of our Bibles underneath the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. So Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's a pretty straightforward commandment. Not really a lot of gray area there. God says, don't take my name in vain. And if you do, you're going to pay for it. But before we do any attempts to see what that means for the Israelites, before we make any attempt to see what that means for us right now as followers of Jesus, there's a question worth asking. What is God's name? You ever thought about that? Is God's name God? Is it something else? Does he have a last name? Does he have a middle name? What is God's name? Well, Moses asks that same question. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. We remember our story with Moses, this guy who's 
going on about his life. He had some crazy stuff happen in Egypt, and so he starts life fresh in a new place. He thinks he's finally getting back to normal. Things are finally passing on. And then God speaks to him from the burning bush. And in this conversation, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, Well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this phrase, I am, it was connected to a word that you may have heard before. If you've been a Christian for a long time, the name Yahweh, you might read it in a book. You might hear it in a song occasionally, this name Yahweh, and it appears nearly 7000 times. In the Old Testament, it is the most common name for God in the Old Testament. It's considered his personal name, if you want to refer to it that way. And when you read your Old Testament in your Bible and you see the Lord in all caps, that's where that name is. But the thing about this name is that we're really not even sure if Yahweh is how you pronounce it. In the original language, it's only four consonants. There's no vowels. And it's kind of hard to pronounce words when you don't have any vowels. But Yahweh is the best that we seem to be able to come up with. But the way this comes back to the idea of taking God's name in vain, throughout much of their history, when a Jewish person was reading their Old Testament and they came across those four Hebrew consonants, they would not dare pronounce that name. They would never think about trying to vocalize that name. There were other names for God that were a little bit not as respected as these four letters. And so when they came across Yahweh, they would say another name. It was just something they were trained to do. And the reason they did that is because they believed that this name was so holy, was so perfect, was so set apart that they wouldn't dare say that word from their lips. They weren't worthy of having that name on their lips. And they didn't want to come anywhere close to taking God's name in vain because they knew just how important God's name really is. But what does it mean to take God's name in vain? You know, sometimes we read this commandment and we say, all right, I get it. I need to stop that really bad habit of when I slam my toe into the end table or when I slam my finger with a hammer or when I see something really crazy or unbelievable. I say those three words in that certain order and I know it's kind of rude and my parents always told me not to and it's not really good for a Christian to do that. I'm going to stop. I promise. And then we move on and go to number four. But this commandment is so much bigger than watching your words and not accidentally saying, oh, my gee, or at least trying to say, gosh, instead. This is way bigger than that. That phrase in vain, it can mean a lot of things. Some people say to take God's name in vain means to take it for unreality, to use it as an expression and not really consider the fact that. God is actually real. He's actually alive. And we're talking about him when we say that name. Martin Luther said that to take the Lord's name in vain is to lie and assert something under his name that isn't true. 
So Martin Luther basically said to take the Lord's name in vain is to say something that you think is true and then tack God's name onto it. And then if it turns out not being true, then you've done a major insult to God. Some people say that to take the Lord's name in vain is simply saying it in a way that's empty or saying it in a way that's frivolous or insincere, just not thinking about what it is that we're saying when we say God. But J.I. Packer hits on two big themes, and it all kind of falls under the idea of irreverence. And Packer says that to use God's name with bad language is a way of taking it in vain. But then he says to use God's name with promise keeping is often to take it in vain. Sometimes we make commitments with our words. We say that we're going to do something. We say that we'll take care of something, and then we tack God's name onto it to make sure that everyone knows that we're serious. That this is a big deal, that we are committed to fulfilling this promise and keeping our word. But then when we fall short, Packer says that is a major slap in the face to the God whose name we have attached to our promises that we often fail to keep. But here's the thing, and the way this goes deeper, as true as all that stuff is, taking the Lord's name in vain has a lot more to do with than just our speech. What do our actions say about God's name? Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. There is a very humbling, even scary passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. To which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. You see, Lord, all caps. That's where you have those four Hebrew consonants that I am the Lord declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So the passage is clear. God's people were given this command to be a holy nation, to be a kingdom, to be a priesthood, to be set apart from all the other nations, that the other nations would see them and ask about this God that they worship and want to know what's so special about him and what's so different about your God compared to all of our gods. And yet the Israelites seem to have failed in that endeavor. They've been given over to idolatry. They found themselves tempted by their own sin. They found themselves straying from God time and time and time again. And they haven't done a great job of being that nation of priests that they're supposed to be. And God's not too happy about it. He doesn't take kindly to someone taking on the family name and then going out and insulting the family name through the way they've lived their lives. It's about more than just words. It's about actions, too. And God says, Israel, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to save you the way I have time and time again in the past. But this isn't for you. This is for me because my name looks really bad right now. And so I'm going to vindicate my name in spite of you. God's name is important. It's important to him and it should be important to us. And that should be seen not just in how we speak, but it should be seen in how we live. So how often do we actually see God's name taken in vain? Well, I think we see it a lot. 
we often go to the classic example, the national example of the musician who is thanking God for their success, even though the only reason their album sold so well is because they catered to the sin that lives in every single one of us. We see it in the actor who thanks God for all their success, even though they sacrificed all of their convictions to get their foot in the door. We see it in the businessman who thanks God for his corner office, even though the reason he got there was that he left a path of destruction and betrayal and cruelty in his wake. We see it in the mirror when we thank God for that raise we got, even though we have absolutely no intention of giving any of that money to kingdom purposes or giving any of that money to anyone who might be in need. We see it in that person who says, only God can judge me. They use that phrase to reject any accountability from any brothers and sisters in Christ who care about them. We see it in the African leader claiming that God told him to sell little girls to be sex slaves. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. We see it in the person justifying their actions by saying, you know, God's called me to do this or God hasn't called me to do that. When really it's not about God calling us to do anything. It's about the fact that we either wanted to do it and we decided to do it or we didn't want to do it. And we just decided not to do it. And we throw God's name in there to make it sound okay. God's name in vain is not just seen in three words in a certain order, but it's often seen in the entirety of our lives. You know, this sounds pretty doom and gloom when you think about it. The Lord's name should not be taken in vain. If you do it, you're not going to be held guiltless because God's name matters to him. And we've all done it because we all have said it the wrong way. Our lives often do not reflect the God who has saved us. They don't really speak to the fact that we're God's sons and daughters. And the only person who hasn't taken God's name in vain is the person who's perfect in word and deed. Not too good of an outlook, is it? But there is good news. There's another name in Scripture that is just as holy and just as righteous and just as perfect as those four Hebrew consonants we talked about earlier. And that name is Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Peter, that guy who used to be Simon, the guy whose name Jesus changed. He's preaching here, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in that name, that name Jesus. That name didn't look too hot when Jesus was nailed to a cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed. That was not a name that you really wanted to be too associated with in those moments. But salvation truly is found in that name. The one who died for me, the one who died for you, the body broken, the blood shed. There's salvation for that musician in that name. There's salvation for the actor. There's salvation for the businessman. There's Salvation for that selfish guy who lives in my bathroom mirror quite a bit. There's salvation for the person who rejects accountability. There's salvation for that person who is having a hard time not living by their own agenda and their own agenda alone. There's even salvation for that African terrorist in that name, Jesus. 
Salvation is found in that name and that name alone. So the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is that we might honor that name, not profane it. That we might lift that name high with our words and with our deeds. That we might proclaim that name from the rooftops to anyone and everyone who hasn't heard it. To anyone and everyone who hasn't met Jesus yet. Who hasn't discovered this source of living water. This source of salvation that died for them. And so we proclaim that name over and over and over and over to anyone who will listen. That's how we honor God's name. That's how we lift up God's name, by proclaiming the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we read these commandments, and if we have any sense of self-awareness, we might find ourselves thinking, man, I am in really, really bad shape because I'm not doing too well. With these things. I'm not doing too well with following these things all the time. I've been a Christian for a long time, but, but I'm still struggling with this one and that one and that one too. And God, we are grateful that salvation is not found in our ability to keep these commandments. Salvation is not found in making sure that we get it all right. Salvation is not found and perfection that we strive for unsuccessfully. Salvation is found in the name of your Son, Jesus. God, I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will speak that name to one another, that we will be sources of life and sources of encouragement to one another by speaking that name, but that we will yell that name as loud as we can when we leave this place. That our words will testify to that name as our salvation, that our deeds will testify to that name of salvation. I pray that as your people, we won't profane your name to the people around us, but instead we will honor your name to the people around us and that people will ask what it is about you that's so worthy of worship. God, your name is holy, your name is righteous, your name is perfect, and we are privileged that we would even dare to say your name. But thanks to Jesus, we can come to you and we can say your name with confidence. We can proclaim your name to the world and we're grateful for that. God, we love you. We praise you. We lift your name high above everything else. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.